Listeners are advised that there is some poor audio in the first few minutes of this podcast due to some connectivity issues. Welcome to the Mad Debrief podcast. I'm joined by Gronya Hala. Hi, Gronya. Hello. And Dan Worth, who wants to start this podcast with a plug. Dan, plug away. Yes, hello there. Hello, everyone. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to let everyone know that the new My Best Teacher podcast is now live. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, Spotify. Just Google My Best Teacher. Uh, the first episode was with Tim Vine, and uh, it's a really great listen, if I do say so myself. And so, yeah, I really recommend downloading and subscribing to get listening to that episode and the future ones to come as well. I would say Dan makes a joke in that podcast. He's quite proud of it. So if you could give him feedback on the joke, he'd be very pleased. <laughs> I have had good feedback already, so they um, career high. It deserves, it deserves good feedback, to be honest. Um, you can only find out what it is if you listen. Uh, okay, let's look at the 15th of January edition of the magazine. Okay, I'm going to kick things off by doing things slightly different. I'm going to combine two different features. And when these were commissioned, they weren't commissioned to be partners or, or tandem pieces, they were, they were commissioned separately, but they fall quite nicely together. And the first is the cover feature by Jared Cooney-Horvath, who's one of the best science communicators out there. And he's talking about the difference between the brain and the mind. And, and there's two schools of thought. Some people think the brain and the mind are one, i.e. everything that happens in the mind is, is, is encased in the brain, if you like. His argument is actually the brain is part of the mind but as is the body and as is the environment i.e this thing we call the mind is, is a creation of parts not entirely in the brain as such and that's important to educators because if we have a view of the brain as all-encompassing as we are trying to change brains and we are concerned with brains uh, it leads us to a physiological uh, cognitive interpretation of education which he says is highly damaging in a number of ways. He does list quite an extensive uh, uh, list of those. But one of the most interesting is the fact that uh, academia tries to isolate the brain in its, its studies of education, whereas actually Gerald's argument is when that emerges into the classroom environment where those you know, isolations of variables are taken away and you start to have the chaos of the classroom, you get this situation where things don't work because the student is more than their brain, which takes us to this fantastic school in Japan where Molly Boulding, um, who has, has actually written for us since she was an A-level student, is now at the University of Cambridge and is a fantastic writer, actually. Um, she found this school in Japan where they make, they sort of hype, hype up the variables in the classrooms not only have you got the normal chaos of a classroom they make it even more chaotic so they've got a grass field in the middle of the school where the kids have to run this is a primary and early year setting where the kids run across for the lessons and they've made it purposely by so that the kids will fall over in an effort to build their resilience so you know the kids are running across stack it they're crying they get up they carry on and then eventually they learn to look where they're going uh, the classrooms are all movable, so on any day you'll have a class of 35 and the next day a class of four. The walls, the movable walls are paper thin, so you can hear the sounds across the whole um, school and it's just chaos, basically. And all the indoor spaces are outdoor spaces. You can climb on the roof, you, you can put your light, basically, in a, in a, in a, in a controlled environment. And um, the, the principal says, we're trying to create 
resilient kids who can work within inconvenience. We can inconvenience them now to convenience them later. So I look at these two features as, 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 as saying the same thing, that education is really hard because it's chaos. That immediately when we try and simplify things, we, we sort of twist the reality of it. So I'm going to throw it open to you too. I mean, let's take the Japan school and let's say, you know, if it's right and the, the, the mind is this, is, this, is this amalgamation of the environment and the body and the brain, and this school is hyping up chaos. Come on, Gronje, you know, I know that your, your teacher sense is, is cracking as we speak. So one of the things that really stuck out from, um, from Jared's piece was when he was talking about things like the um, prolonged social isolation on prisoners when they're sentenced to solitary confinement often leads to them then having like physical problems and it's, you know, it's really distressing for them and having like negatively messing with people's minds can physically upset them and can psychologically upset them. So why would you build a school to deliberately upset children? Well, they're happy kids, he says, you know, they're happy kids, happy parents. They're teaching a standard curriculum. His argument is that if you control the school to the point that it's silence that people are working in this very controlled environment, that when those kids go into the workplace, you know, granted at the moment everyone's working in their bedroom so it is quite like a a quiet controlled environment in a lab well not at the moment because i've got four kids downstairs going absolutely mental but when you're in an office open plan office everyone's got you know everyone's chatting around you are you do have to teach yourself how to isolate it within that 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 environment and so his argument is why do we throw them into the adult workplace with no preparation for working in that way well, that would make sense if everybody then went to, left school and went to work in an office, but that's not true, is it? It isn't. So I guess school just makes learning as easy as possible to make sure that all children can access the curriculum and do the best they can in the best possible conditions so they can then go on to the workplace, the various different workplaces that people work in. And, and also... I, we don't just prepare children at school to go to work. Like life isn't just about work. Life's a lot more than work, isn't it? That's not, surely that's not the only think, thing of school to prepare children for the workplace. You don't I think, think his that? point is, no, and I think his point is more broad than that. I've probably done it disservice and I, I, I apologise um, to that head teacher because well, he's like, actually arguing for a lifestyle of chaos. And he's saying, how can we make these kids more resilient? How can we make them adaptable? How can we make them flexible and his view is we teach them it in the same way as we teach them maths or english which by the way a school does teach it's a it's a standard japanese state curriculum that they teach in this environment well i think i think you you it a service it's just that i think it's a sort of bring up the other element which is that i think i took from this that it's not saying that there's this oh, yeah of course there's always chaos if we use that word in all schools but school, it's like, just because they've made it more possible for there to be more chaos. I didn't read it something like there was. I imagine in this school, it's more about you learn how to speak more quietly because you know there's a class right next door and you can't, you know, just shout your head off because you'll, you won't no one hear anything. So you sort of have to learn to moderate in a way that you, everyone learns at school. But it just sort of enhances that learning process of moderation in the same way the field is bumpy. Children will always learn eventually to run and not fall over, you know, as part of the week. It's, you know, why knees is such a common childhood thing, isn't it? But they've sort of exaggerated that process to sort of make it, maybe make it quicker or faster or more pronounced or more memorable to children. And that's what I thought was really interesting. And 
do make me laugh though. I think well, there's probably lots of schools in England or across the UK which have bumpy playing fields by more accident than by, yeah. by design. <laughs> I'm sure there's lots of teachers thinking, well, yeah, actually, our kids are always tripping over the divots in the playing field. But um, I think no, it is though. They're, they're two absolutely fascinating articles. I mean, the first one, other features you said, I mean, it, it's such a great read. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, it's what's so good about Tez, isn't it? Because it is about teaching and education, but it's also like just about what it is to be a human and why we are the way we are and you know so many interesting things in that and his an- analogy to a car and like what makes a car accelerate and it's like well a, a car all cars accelerate but what causes acceleration well you can't just say it's the spark plugs or the, the wheels because they all work together but it, you can't identify a single component that is the cause of acceleration and it's like what's the cause of learning what's the cause of it's 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 a combination of factors and yeah i, I, don't, I don't know it's one of those things where i just think that there's sort of doesn't be definitive. This is what it tells hundred percent. It's like it shows that there are interesting ways to do things. And and yeah, I thought the school in Japan sounded amazing. And I think this really, I think a, a certain kind of parent probably sends their child there. Maybe who's who's more on board. To- well, Dan, elaborate. Well, Mark it, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I am trying to mediate, I suppose. But I, I can I can see the benefits. But I can understand why some people look at and think absolutely. Not. I want a classroom. I want them to learn academic subjects and skills and then as Gronje said I want to leave and be ready for work but also be ready for the world and I agree that's part of what education is isn't it? it's not it shouldn't be just solely a you leave to get a job which is kind of what universities become in so many ways but it should be you you learn to learn I think as well I think it's refreshing to hear especially now a time of great uncertainty that their school's doing things differently in the sense of their schools trying to go okay well the world is a chaotic place and i'm not saying it's right or wrong but it's refreshing to hear a school just go yeah we give our kids chaos because we think that prepares them for chaos and i know it's a, it's a controlled sort of chaos but and i think it's refreshing to hear jared come out and say you know what i understand the the desire to simplify but the desire to simplify skews what we do and I think it's a plea really for complexity in education. And I think, I don't know, I haven't taught, so Gronya will probably come back at me as she usually does. But I, I like the idea of embracing complexity and saying, do you know what? These aren't simple answers. And one of our columnists, Megan Dixon, writes this frequently in her column is that, you know, we've got to be careful with certainty in education because yes, it, we need a rough idea, but no, we don't need um one size fits all and it's a bit like the reading age um feature last week again it's this idea that we can cling to the the the, the certainties when actually it's a false certainty really mm. and she's I not even coming back at me well, Look, I, she, I was, if you could see her audience usually I'm she's silent. at my throat at this point but she's going no john's made a good point this week and i think I've it's a little away. bit like what dan said about the parents choosing and I think a lot of the time that we we talk about parent choice in schools and we focus on the problems that raises with applications and cohorts and keeping schools open because schools fall out of favour in a community and suddenly they can't get the the, the kids on roll and then that has a negative impact on staffing etc etc but actually not having every school exactly the same is a really good thing because not all children are exactly the same. I think that's right. I mean, how much, I think, I mean, my kids are two at school, two are going to school and, and, you know, when you, we can't tour schools at the moment, but I think there is a, there's a desire out there among parents, even though they don't understand it, 
like fully, but they do want to see differences between the schools they visit and to have some sort of choice and selection. And I think possibly there's an argument that the government's aiming for some sort of standardization whereby there isn't that flexibility and choice. And it's, it would be interesting to see how that goes because there's a, you know, do parents just want good results and happy kids? Yes, probably. Is there very different ways of getting there that if, if they were exposed to it, they would make certain decisions based on schools because of that? I think completely they would. Um, so it'd be interesting over the next few years to see if that standardization does creep further and further in. Through no fault of schools, this is, you know, this is you know, a combination of Ofsted and government very dictating a, a certain approach to see how that goes. Okay, so number two, Dan. And this, you know, we're getting into interior design here, Dan, aren't we? We are, and it sort of follows on a little bit from the last one, actually, isn't it, about space and setting and, and how you, you know, lay things out for people to work. And this is actually... Um, more looking at the staff now and, and up in the senior leadership teams and, and how they sort of configure their office space. And there's a, a teacher called Dave McPartland and he talks about how over the last sort of year, he came to realise that the office layout they had for their senior stuff wasn't very conducive to actually working well and it was all a bit siloed and they were all spread apart and it took too long to him to just have like a quick chat with people. And he talks about how he reconfigured the space and how he made it and to, into a more open plan setup, I suppose. Um, which I thought was interesting because, again, I, w- I would always have thought that, you know, uh, the senior staff, um, he's the head teacher, um, would have their own office and that would have that sort of conveys that authority and sense of, you know, all the headmaster's office. You know, if someone ended up there, that was, it was like school gossip. Like, oh God, it ends up in the headmaster's office. And, and same for parents, I would have thought. If you have a meeting with the headmaster, you sort of, I think many parents, if they, whatever it might be, good or bad, would sort of, that would feel that the meeting was important. You went into the private office of the headmaster and spoke. But he obviously seems to think that there is a benefit and more benefits to doing it this way. And obviously it works for him as a leader, which is great. And, and he talks about how they reconfigured a diff, like, um, an audio music room. They used to record a, a radio show or something, or you know, pupils could record radio to become their sort of, where they could have confidential meetings if required. Um, yeah, I just thought it showed that, you know, and it's obviously again, like to that point about innovation, there's people doing different things and, and seeing their schools in different ways and adapting to maybe more modern business practices with open plan is more common in most offices now. And obviously that has good and bad as well, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting feature. And I expect, you know, right now while schools are being reconfigured so much, there's probably other teachers probably looking at some of their space and thinking, hang on a minute, why do we have this massive room for one person? Why don't we turn this into a little collaborative space where you know, heads of department can have, come and have a, a meeting that's more comfortable than having to go and sit in a classroom, which is cold and drafty or whatever it might be, you know, just something like that. So I expect to turn that I think leaders and other sort of senior people could read this and think, hmm, yeah, maybe we should do something like this. What, what struck me was that it's, it's sort of a physical manifestation of a, of a really interesting leadership idea. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that guy was uh, uh, talking really about a collegiate way of form of leadership in this together you know i'm very open like i'm i'm being him now yeah. not me because i'm not open at all i'm <laughs> a dictator but um but he's saying you know i'm open with my decisions i found myself going around to all these different senior leaders to share and help and then i actually want to bring them all together and i think that is a that is a style of leadership that actually is really interesting now where schools are under so much pressure and delegation is really important because head teachers are trying to be so many different things other than head teachers. I mean, a head teacher said to me the other day that 
the, the last thing on their list at the moment is education because they're, they're having to do so much admin and so much, you know, firefighting, so much health and safety that the thing they're there for is being pushed always to the bottom. And he said, it's horrendous. And I think that was interesting to me that he's gone, okay, in this time, collegiate leadership, but also the fact that one of the senior leaders didn't want to do it. And that he yeah. was open enough to let that person stay out of that app, stay out of that sort of um, way of working. And I thought that was brave. I mean, that was the bit that I, yeah, I found that a bit surprising, actually. I see, I thought that was a bit, I mean, you know, it obviously works for them, but I did read that and thought, oh, that seems like someone setting themselves apart from what this supposed idea is. But I'm, I'm sure in the, in the setting, it probably has more, it probably logically makes more sense or it's not quite as dramatic as it sounds. Maybe it's literally just a small, I'll be off the side, I don't know. But yeah, that struck, struck to me as well. It's nice mm. that they could still be flexible to fit in that other person's preferred way of working. And I thought it's really interesting, the fact that this has sort of come out because of coronavirus. They were looking at the floor plans because they mm. needed to take all that space back they could possibly need to make sure that they could socially distance with the students in school. And with looking at this empty space and thinking, oh, this doesn't really, you know, what, what's, what was the expression he used in the article? It's a retail thing about the, your yeah. money per square footage. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, that, that brought me back to my days of working in Topshop and having to look at the, the stand. That is a very complicated layout where you've got all your different fixtures and you've got to make sure that you can move in between them, but you don't have any wasted space. Every single inch of that floor is accounted for. And taking that attitude and looking at a floor plan of a school and thinking, right, well, this is just somewhere that we walk through. Like that's, that's a big old space. We can change that. And, and like you say, John, leadership has changed at the moment. A lot of it is problem solving. They're, they're looking at the new guidance. This isn't something that any one person can solve on their own. He's admitting that as a leader, he needs his other, other people he leans on to, to help him with the, the problem solving. And so it makes sense. And the, um, your, your man with the separate office, he can come in and work with them in, when they need to do that and then go back to his own little, that's probably what you prefer, isn't it, John? You'd want to go back to your own space. I'll be very happy in my own space. I have to say, I'm, I'm not an unsociable person, but you know, I, I like, I, I like being on my own. What would you pick, Dan? <laughs> would you be? Would you have your own office and then come and mix? Um, but be able to no, I think I think it depends on the job, I suppose. But I think no, I, I like open plan, and I previously worked in a job that was open plan, and it was great, and it, it really suited us. But I've been in, but when open plan is really noisy and distracting. It's a nightmare. It's really hard, particularly I think in kind of thing we do, where you're trying to just read something, edit it, and make it. It's got to be clean and accurate. You can, it's really hard to do that when people around you are just chatting away. Particularly, I mean, this is this is an interesting element of this. I wonder if this has been researched, but it's when it's teams that aren't your team that are noisy and or right next to you that are not, not being. I don't mean especially noisy. That makes it much harder because they're talking about something utterly irrelevant to you. So if you're sat next to you know the programming team or the sales team, which happens in open offices now, people move around more much harder than when it's your colleagues talking about something that you're not in the conversation, but you kind of, you can, you know, you can tune it out or it will come to you when it needs to come to you. That kind of thing. Whereas you're always sort of, Oh, what? what what's, oh, it's not me. You know, that's what I've always found. I don't know you're why. Referring but... to, um, thresholds there, Dan, we've done a feature on that a while ago. It's about, oh, there you go. it's about the squirrel effect or the wasp effect in the sense that your attention threshold gets used to what it's used to and anything out of that, comes mm. right to the top of your attention threshold because it assesses it for threat so if you're used to all the the voices around you then uh, you just drown them out they don't meet, meet your threshold for attention but the sales guy right. ringing a bell because he's just made one or the other people they they you don't recognize that so your your brain 
amplifies it from an assessment of threat. It's, it's fascinating. Like, that that it's, sounds spot on. Is that why it's so much more annoying to hear all the extra members of my family who are now at home with me? Yes. <laughs> it is. It's, that's another Jared feature, actually. I'll dig it out. But um, yeah, I mean, I find attention threshold stuff really fascinating because it yeah. all goes back to your base, you know, fight or flight survival, really. That, and I think that would really speak to teachers at the moment because they're all at home, well, not all at home, but they're doing a mixture of at home, in school, face-to-face, online provision. And your home is much more quieter than a school, but it's definitely harder to work in. There's, mm. a sna- there's snacks everywhere. That's why. I, <laughs> <laughs> I just go down the kitchen. Oh, I'll just have another biscuit. I had a run earlier, you know. It's not going to make much difference. Snacks, snacks all day, every day. It's horrendous. Um, so yeah, do, do check that feature out. And I think if you read that in conjunction with the other two, actually, you, it's a really nice discussion about what goes on outside of the brain that affects the mind in, in all three of those features, actually. Okay, so for the third feature, well, it's, it's not even the third feature. We're on about number six feature now. But um, Gwanya, are you going to talk to us about Jarlif O'Brien's feature? Jarlif, by the way, is a fantastic head teacher, uh, a real leader in, in SEN education um and he's written a feature for us this week he has and i've got a game to start with okay we love a game i love games what does albert einstein marilyn monroe and maggie simpson what do they all have in common maggie simpson marilyn monroe albert einstein crazy hair not that's a good guess i don't know i want to say um I can't think of anything. I was going to say something about being like, like, like because she's fictional in the cartoon. That really sort of reduces the like, what they could actually have in common. Not on purpose. Not. Yeah, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm going to say something. They don't wear glasses. <laughs> no, 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 no. They've never been an I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. John, have a guess. I had, that, that was my guess. They've all got crazy hair. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. Quite big hair. Nope. They all had different speech and language problems. Albert Einstein didn't speak until he was four. Marilyn Monroe had a stutter. And Maggie Simpson was a late talker, as evidenced in the Simpsons episode, Lisa's first word. Had to check it to back it up. I just assumed she would have me in the mouth, but she definitely was a late talker. So, speech and language needs. So this piece is all about the really common issue in in children of having speech and language needs and how that links to behavior issues so jarlith starts off with like what are language skills and i thought oh i know what language skills are i've I've got this it's a lot more complicated than what i realized so you might think (laughs) you're speaking and speaking clearly and communicating but it's actually also listening skills too and the process of planning what you're going to say and it's the comprehension of idioms and it's also following social norms in a conversation. So it's really broad and much more complicated and it's really far reaching. And so it's not a surprise really that it's quite hard to diagnose and consequently lots of students never get the help that they need because it's not picked up. Um, and this makes sense. You know, you've got 30 children in a class, sometimes more. And how much time per day can you actually have sustained conversations with them that would actually allow that kind of diagnosis of all those different needs? And as Jarlath points out, that you might have a child who's proficient in one area, but deficient in another. So you might assume they've got really good speech and language needs because they're really good at following social norms, but they lack that skill of planning what they're going to say before they say it. And you 
you miss it because they seem so so strong in other areas. Unfortunately, it means that left undiagnosed as children get older, and speech and language then gets labelled a behaviour issue because they're struggling to follow the class and they're following the teacher's instructions. It's they're just being naughty that you, you think that they're just misbehaving rather than it being the speech and language issue at the, the root of it. And that student who gives up because they don't understand, the last thing they want to say is, oh, it's because I didn't understand it. It's that losing face. And all teachers can recognise that in their students, that, that child who disguises their difficulty with being naughty because being seen as being naughty is a lot, lot nicer than being seen as being less able. Um, so the good news, and there is good news, that the, there is lots of things that you can do to help students who have got speech and language issues and if you you put those things in place it doesn't actually disrupt the learning for the other students it's not anything you've got to do that is that that difficult it's things like repeating instructions pre-teaching vocab before you start a topic providing um vocabulary prompts in like a pastoral sense if a child is struggling to explain how they feel about something giving them the words to help them label their emotions is a really good tactic to take and to expect issues with social norms so you're continually modeling your expectations so demonstrating what a conversation should look like and praising when somebody has a a good conversation with you. Um, And there's these blank levels for questioning and it goes from factual to abstract and that's really useful to read. And I think that's, if you take anything away from that piece, it should be those blank levels and understanding how you can use your own language to get the best out of your children in your class. I think that's, I mean, the, the the advice Jared Jalif gives here is extensive, isn't it? It, it mm-hmm. is like these are this is a very very practical feature. I mean, the problem's laid out in very blunt terms, and I think it does need to be laid out in blunt terms because you know I, you see it all the time with adults, like it, let alone kids, where you try and you you think you've explained it perfectly, and then it doesn't quite happen, and then people get upset because they didn't quite understand what you meant, but they don't want to tell you that they didn't quite understand what you meant. So instead you get this sort of divergence where they can go very, they're very passive or very aggressive. And it's, it's, it's complicated as an adult with, with apparent mature, emotional, relational sense. Yeah. I mean, a seven year old, I mean, Christ, like it's no wonder these kids are kicking off. And like, I think we can be with my kids, you know, they're quite good readers. So you assume they know stuff sometimes and you go, do you know what that means? And they go, I have no idea. And you're like, All right, okay, brilliant. So it's it it's this masking, isn't it? There's 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 loads of masking going on. It's masking from abilities, so you can be better, as you said, with one part of language than the other. So you're sort of unintentionally masking your problems. Then there's this purposeful masking where behaviour becomes a a way of hiding your communication needs. Mm. It's strange, isn't it? Like why evolution from an evolutionary point of view is it that when you're young you're determined to is saying you don't know something is, is really hard. And, and you'll go, Oh yeah, yeah, I understand. Like children do that. Don't they? They, they nod and agree. And then you go, but do you really they go, No, I don't understand. Like, <laughs> why do they do that? Why is that the evolutionary tactic? And maybe, maybe you can tell us, John. I think it's groups. It's because they need to, be, they need to belong to a group. And it's, do they not do it to you though, as parents and on their own? I think they just, a lot of the time they're looking There's a really good, okay, we're going to take a detour. Brace yourself. In uh, Making a Murderer, right? Have you seen Making a yeah, Murderer? Yeah, yeah. And the kid 
with communication yeah language needs is being led by the police mm. and the psychologist explains it and he says he's essentially looking the whole time to see what to give them the answer they want yeah not not the true answer and i think you have that with kids where they're looking at you going well he wants me to say this and they're not thinking you know it's that it's that desire to please and that is mm. a group group think thing like Gorn, you were saying but it's also relational in a sense that most kids like their teachers. Most kids want to please their teachers. And so they will tell them exactly what they think mm. they want to hear. And, you know, there's also a weird, irrational fear of getting in trouble. I was a good kid at primary school and, you know, I didn't want to get in trouble at all. So I would never admit to, to not knowing something because it might mean I hadn't listened, then I'll get mm. in trouble. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think there's lots going on. But I think the, the need, you know, it gets a bad press, doesn't it? When people say, oh, behavior is communication and, you get a group of teachers going, wow, this, yeah, kids just messing around sometimes. Well, yeah, they are sometimes, but if we don't even entertain the idea that it may be a form of communication in certain, in, in certain situations, that, 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 that's actually not doing your job, putting it bluntly. Yeah. Because if that kid is, is, is just messing around, then find out. Don't just assume because that's what they did last time. Whereas Jarleth makes this really strong argument to say, okay, have you checked? Do you know, like those blank level questions are brilliant because you know, do they understand that level? Are they a level five or are they actually a level two? And you're operating at a level four or five. And that's, that kid is, is just not functioning. And yes, it's about choices. Yes, it's about, and I think Jarlath makes this point, it's reinforcing the social norms. It's making a culture where they can say, I don't understand. But I think the blunt response of kids just mess around is where a lot of these kids go missing. And I'm putting myself out there and saying that. <laughs> I think differentiation gets a really bad press because when it's done poorly, it's, it's quite damaging. But this is an excellent way that you can differentiate for all of your learners that yeah. can only improve the quality of your explanations and your teaching and your questioning. And I think it's really important to be mindful, of, especially when you're perhaps newer to the, cl- to the classroom and you're getting your head around how to use questioning it's really important to be mindful of all of your students and their vocabulary levels and what they're able to understand. Mm. So before we go, we were going to talk about one more feature. And I think we've pretty much covered every feature in the magazine now. But we're <laughs> going to talk about this one because uh, Gronya wrote it and it's a fascinating topic. And it's, it's, it's particularly relevant at the moment because it's on the rise during lockdown for various reasons. So uh, do you want to give us a very brief overview, Gronya? So really brief overview is we're looking at revenge porn and the problems even around the, the, the name revenge porn and how that's quite misleading and the legal implications for your students. And, you know, this is a, it's a, one of our FE features. So we're looking more at post 16 and the, the problems with the narrative. Oh, if you, you take photographs of yourself naked and you send it on you're producing child pornography and you are going to be in trouble and you're going to go to prison and trying to scare children into and young people into not taking the photos in the first place as a tactic hasn't really worked and the developing technology means that it's only becoming a, a bigger problem and we need to really broach this in a way with students that will ensure that they're keeping themselves safe and if they do find themselves in trouble, they're not going to try and hide it or keep it quiet. They'll, they'll know to trust an adult to go and tell them about what's happened so they can get the help that they need. I think what struck me as well is that, you know, it's not just naked pictures that it's sexually 
you know, sexually provocative pictures. And it's sexually provocative pictures used in a way that the original maker of that image didn't intend. And there you get into TikTok and Instagram Reels territory where a girl or a boy, but unfortunately more more girls at the moment because of the cultural pressure on that, will make a certain type of video that they intend to send to their friends, not knowing that there's people out there who copy that image, put it on different channels. And the, this, this, this image or video can just go viral and get onto some really weird channels. I think you mentioned a couple in, in the, in the, in the piece or one of the experts does, you know, mm-hmm. you can actually search for like teen, I, I can't remember what it was. Golden Snapchats. It's a, it's yeah, a yeah. And this is, you know, and it's been in the, it's been in the media a lot recently after I'd, I'd written it. There's been some, some movement. Um, the New York Times had an excellent piece about the children of um, the victims of these these incidents, and it's it's like you say they didn't con- they consented to create it, but they didn't consent for it to be shared in the way it's been shared, and that's where the problem is. And that's where we get into. I think this is where we get into Donald Trump briefly. Another detour, but. I think the days of TikTok, Facebook, Twitter saying they're not publishers are over because mm-hmm. they are publishing material. And if we as a as journalists published content out of context, there are severe ramifications for that. And Twitter and Facebook as a publishing platform, I think the the way Donald Trump's been suspended and the way Parler's been handled, we're starting to see an acknowledgement there that these are publishing platforms. Dan may disagree because he's a former tech journalist. No, I, I, it's a it's a really complicated arena. But I, um, I mean, one again, this is a slightly different point. But one thing that always used to very frustrate me talking to these big companies, they've got all the technology and all the brain power and all the money, and they would fall over themselves backwards to say how great their platforms are and how you know uh, advanced it is. And the moment this topic comes up, and same with policing, you know, violent videos and you know stuff that really shouldn't be being seen by the average person on Facebook or whatever it suddenly becomes, oh, we can't do anything about that. We're not able to say, oh, it would be impossible for us to moderate all this stuff. And it's like, I don't think it is. I think you just don't want to build the tools to do it because it would reduce the amount of content on your platforms, which ultimately is what you need. And I just think as a society, we, I still don't, I mean, I think there's a huge, you know, strata of people that do take it very seriously and realize what a problem it is. And the vast majority don't because in your piece, you talk about this technology that enables you to turn to make people naked, you know, you can send them this bot or take a normal picture of someone and sort of put in generic naked body to the match the head. And if you really think about that, how utterly badly that could, dangerous that is and how it could be used. And eventually I'm sure evolved society where that kind of thing is immediately recognized as rubbish or, you know, very illegal because I can't see how on earth you can have a functioning society where at any moment, anyone could sort of create highly, toxic damaging videos of you not only to the damage it could do to your reputation but the psychological problems that could cause because you may know it's completely fake and you know no one believes it but you've seen yourself used by that and you and you could almost know, never know who did it you could have stalkers or enemies or people you think are your friends who you know these kind of weird things you read about like friends who actually were deceiving someone behind their back and all this kind of horrible stuff and yeah it's massive and i don't, i think the tech companies you know, if you give humans a platform, they'll use it in every way. I don't think it's that they haven't created this problem out of thin air. You know, the moment the printing press arrived, I'm sure people started using it for, you know, making pornographic images. I mean, what's sort of much of art, if not 
a form of making at the start it would have had to be typographic pornographic images i guess like some sort of like <laughs> yeah like wood blocks and stuff <laughs> yeah, but I, I bet you it did i bet you i bet you it was because that's what humans do right we we pretend we're not these but we're, we're all you know animals and, and whatnot and that's what we do so it's not the tech tech companies have a credit problem but they just made it 10 million times worse and um it's only going to get more worse and I, I think as a society and we, we, yeah, we need to address it and, and do much more with it. And I, I think it's going in the right direction, but it's slow because people just want to pretend it's not there. They want to, they want to just ignore it. I don't know. The, the feature does a good job of showing there are the, the good work people are doing. I think that's the, what you have to cling to and think it is moving in the right direction, but it, it needs to go faster. Yeah, we do highlight and signpost bodies that you can contact mm. support you. And we also highlight the work of um, companies that are looking to tackle these problems and you might have heard about Telegram a lot in the news recently because of the now banned from Twitter, Donald Trump. Um, and it, we, we talk a little bit about their role that they've played in all of this. It's a great feature. Um, do check it out. It's a great issue, actually. Really, as you can tell, we've um, explored so much of it on the podcast that, um, sorry for my kids, just, I don't know if you can hear that, but this is the reality of homeschooling that four children have come up in the middle of the, right at the end of the podcast to get dressed at 10 o'clock. Um, that's all for this week. Uh, next week, we've got a great cover feature from John Morgan looking at how do you measure a four-year-old, which isn't controversial at all because um, obviously the whole nature, you're just saying measure a four-year-old gets people riled, but this is, um, this is the feature looking at, okay, if we want to assess a four-year-old, is it in any way accurate? What can we do? Explore some really interesting points. So um, do, do take a read of that. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.